Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Human Element, Kara's podcast on modern marketing. Whew. That's all I have to say about the election. We're not talking about it anymore. I am incredibly excited to have two dear friends and colleagues with me today. The first is a first-timer to the pod, Fiona Lloyd, Managing Director and Global Client President at Kara. Fiona, welcome to the pod. I can't believe it's taken us this long. Yeah, I'm trying not to hold it against you, Robert. <laughs> this, this is, I feel like this is going to be a rough 45 minutes. Uh, and Sean Healy making, I think, his second appearance. He is our oh. Global Chief Strategy Officer. Kara, is that true, Sean? I'm honored. And actually, you time my invites to uh, coincide with the beginning of UK lockdowns. So uh, That's we've, right. We've just begun another one today. And lo and behold, I'm back on the pod. So here's the thing. The next time I send you an invite for the pod, maybe turn it down. Uh, yeah, or yeah. maybe maybe wager at my local bookmaker that there may be another lockdown on a particular date. Yes, I think that's a good way to go. Okay. Listen, welcome to both of you. I'm so excited to have you here. And I'm so excited to talk about the topic we're going to cover today. And that is our 2020 Cara Brand EQ study, which is a dive into the most emotionally intelligent brands in the world. It's, it's a great piece, and this pod is to help launch it. But before we dive in, Fiona, I wanted to start with you because you really have been working, prodding, shepherding, nudging us along on the work we've done around our new positioning and approach. It is very much what I would call in your particular case, a true labor of love. And so I wanted you to talk a little bit about that process and kind of what we've been doing and what it means. Thank you for referring to me as a shepherd, Robert. As you know, I am a horse rider, not a shepherd. But thank you. <laughs> Maybe I need to diversify. Yeah, so it's been it's been a great 12 months, really, for us. I think many things have changed in our industry and have been changing over several years, even before the pandemic. The questions that clients were asking us, their needs and the things that kept them awake at night had changed. So have the breadth and depth of our services and capabilities, both in terms of what we do in CARA uh, and what we can access as part of Dentsu. When we look at all of that, we, we really needed a new platform that communicated our point of view and how we work. We started off under the very safe guidance of our global CMO, Robert Schwartz, <laughs> to look at what makes CARA CARA, who are we on our best day, and what really stood out from taking a look at CARA over the years, right back from when Gilbert founded us over 50 years ago, was this commitment that we had to understanding people. And we've always built processes, platforms, we've hired our talent based out of that curiosity and how and why people behave as they do, believe as they do and live as they do. The other side of it was looking at the new capabilities that we've been building out because media is no longer the train tracks for advertising creative. People live their lives in media. We listen, we learn, we shop, we protest, we fall in love in media. So the craft of what we do as a media agency has fundamentally changed. And we've built out a set of capabilities that shift us from delivering just media plans to delivering experience design. And we've done that through adding the principles of experience of design thinking and human-centered thinking into a new way of working. And Sean has been the architect of that. And we call this designing for people. 
So it's both our belief system and our operating model as an agency. And we're really proud of it. And we're really excited to start to talk to clients about it. That's an amazing summary. Thank you, Fiona. There's no chance I could have done that as well as you just did. Sean, so obviously you've been a part of this process since the very beginning. How did the idea of this study, which is really designed to sort of showcase how this idea of human understanding applies to brands, how did the idea for this study come about? Well, Robert, as you know, we're all about adding value. And uh, at the beginning of the year, when we were thinking about how we brought a new way of working and, and, and new positioning to the fore and how we in, inspired our teams to think differently, we were sort of exploring empathy as an important quality in the work that we do and in the outcomes that we create. And we, you know, we started building, you know, it's one of the sprints, it's the first sprint in designing for people. And you know, as we were thinking about how do we develop a more empathetic understanding of the people that we want to create value for, we, we kind of came to this idea of brands as, you know, potentially emotionally intelligent entities. And we started really liking this idea that, you know, maybe in amongst all of the specialism that we kind of have to play with the kind of data and, and technology that maybe we'd lost the sense of, of the human qualities of, of brands and maybe we weren't asking the right kind of questions of data in, in this way. And so being being sort of rather long in the tooth, I could recall the times that we used to use you know, brand archetypes in strategic planning and we used to spend time in workshops figuring out whether the brand should be a, a wizard or, or, or a king. And I guess what we were interested in doing was bringing some, I guess, modern psychology thinking about the kind of human condition into our work. And we hit upon this idea of brands as emotionally or not emotionally intelligent entities. And was it possible for us to figure out which brands were more or less emotionally intelligent, how brands could create value through being more emotionally intelligent? And we know, was there a kind of currency that we could give to our guys to help them kickstart DFP? So that's that's where the idea of the study came from. And the hypothesis this hypothesis that there's a power in humanity for brands and then it might connect to value. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well, we took inspiration from, I guess, the the father of the term EQ, David Goldman, who's a, who's a Harvard scholar. It's always good to start with a Harvard scholar. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Harvard or MIT, or they always find their way into these studies. But, you know, he wrote a bestseller in 1995 that actually really interestingly is used in a lot of leadership training for kind of senior exec types. Yeah, it really became a bit of a movement, right? Yeah, yeah. And it was, you know, emotional intelligence can matter more than IQ. You know, and I guess he was reflecting work that had gone back to the 1960s when I guess psychologists and educators had explored the idea that there were there were different types of intelligence and that we tended to focus on analytical skills rather than intuitive skills in intelligence. Anyway, a body of work kind of built over time and then in, it was kind of crystallized by Goldman's bestseller in 1995 and that, that those ideas have been developed on. But I guess the hypothesis was that, you know, Goldman's unpacking of EQ you know, sets out four or five, depending upon the model, four or five traits of high EQ individuals that, that you know that include self-awareness, 
you know, self-regulation. So this is, you know, behaving ethically, people's motivation, your social skills and empathy, of course. And I guess our hypothesis was that we could actually, you know, talk to consumers about the experiences they have with brands and transfer those human qualities into a bunch of questions about the experiences people have with brands. And then we could go out and talk to people who come from culturally different backgrounds, different kind of nation states, about some of the world's biggest brands, and then kind of figure out which score highly, which don't score so highly, you know, which are the most common traits that we see in those high EQ brands, what the similarities and differences are between cohorts around the world. So yeah, that was the hypothesis. And, and actually, we think it's borne quite a lot of fruit. And we've got some really interesting stuff out of it. So Fiona, you know, just in your kind of top line, what are some of the most important takeaways from this piece of work? I think it's the direct link to growth. There's that chart, which is the killer one. We're using it in so many presentations. I think it's on page 25 of the report, Robert. Um, which <laughs> I love shows it when you cite the, the report. This is great. It's a great chart. Um, <laughs> it's the one that shows the share price performance of the, the 20 highest EQ companies versus the 20 lowest EQ brands. And you can see that those top 20 brands are outperforming from a share price perspective by 400 percentage points. Uh, and I think that's the proof point that this isn't something that clients can ignore. This is really, really important. That's the first thing. And then the second thing, which kind of builds on that, is that we, we know that emotional intelligence matters more to that Gen Z audience. We know this audience is the audience that's quick to call out brands for disingenuous behavior and that they're constantly looking at ethics and I think there's some really interesting data points for brands in the study to help develop strategies around how you build that emotional connection with that audience in the right way, uh, even though those consumers might not be the consumers that are going to go out tomorrow and purchase your product. So it's that short-term, long-term thing and the importance of this audience within any brand strategy. So those are the two things for me. John, what's your perspective on sort of the, the most important takeaways? Oh, where do I start having spent so much time pouring? I was going to say, this is like asking you your favorite children. Yeah, no, I, myself and one of our colleagues, Lowry Coraline, have spent so much time going through this data. A couple of things that I think are really interesting, and I think you know, we'll, we'll no doubt go on to more as we go through. First of all, it's really interesting to see the, the sort of division in performance between brands and categories that say are classically marketed versus those that have been built, I guess, around product and experience more so. I'll just explain a bit more about that. So there's a gulf in performance between what we call the experience focus categories, which, you know, the brands are typically in technology and, and retail. They actually tended to score more highly than the classically positioning focused brands in say, food, automotive, and financial services. What we found about the tech and retail brands, which, you know, I guess are able to adjust the kind of experience they deliver at a higher cadence. And we think that this is re this responsiveness to people's needs is really important. They scored really, really highly on, on the desire to provide a great experience. So this was our, I guess, our fit back to Goldman's motivation. They, they were seen as highly motivated to act mm. in, you know, people's kind of interests and to meet their needs. 
Now, where those brands tended to fall down was on self-regulation, on trust and ethics. And, you know, some of the brands in the kind of tech sector didn't score so highly on this. And I think, you know, we're all kind of familiar with some of the issues around data privacy that have that surrounded that uh, that sector. Now, if we then go to the more classically marketed categories, so as I said, food, automotive financial services, where they scored really high was on what we called self-awareness. So clarity of message, able to express what they stood for, clearly they're brands that spent lots of money on advertising. People have built up a really kind of clear picture of where they stand. However, what's interesting there in contrast is that they scored much lower on empathy. Mm. So when we when we asked people whether or not those brands um, understood the needs of people like them and, and themselves, they scored much lower on the study. So, you know, it's, it, it kind of goes back to that idea of almost having a lighthouse positioning and kind of projecting out what you want to say about yourself, but maybe not being able to respond to changing needs as quickly as the tech and retail brands. So I think that was really, really interesting and quite clearly yep. both camps can learn something from the other. Then the second thing, and we found this, you know, we found this a a bit surprising in a way, but then after looking at the data for longer, it's all clear why. We found that that on the whole, tech brands scored really well on human qualities. And it's it's kind of interesting in in, in the period before this study was undertaken, which was, you know, at the beginning of this year, before before the, the COVID crisis really hit, there'd been an awful lot of bad press for kind of tech brands and how, you know, particularly kids spending too much time with kind of technology, dehumanizing effect, et cetera. What we actually found in this study was that, that, that Microsoft and Google were the top two, you know, brands like Visa and MasterCard, which I guess, you know, got a big fintech component to them, also scored really well. So I think there are lots and lots of learnings about the fact that technology allows you to respond to changing needs and people feel that is a you know a high eq quality that being said not all tech brands performed really well and you know facebook and uber for instance were, were kind of down at the bottom of the down at the bottom of the list you know because they performed quite badly on self-regulation but i think those are two sets of really interesting findings so you know just one thing on that sean because i fiona your point i think is is incredibly important is that, you know, there's this real value creation for the brands themselves associated with the, with the structure of EQ and, and sort of a more humane orientation in the way that they engage with customers. But I think, Sean, to your first point, you know, the, the thing that really struck me was the more traditional construct of I am the brand on the mountaintop. I will tell you what to believe about, you know, kind of my brand, which is really how we did marketing for, you know, a hundred and some odd years, right? Until it became a much more peer-based relationship. That's where the gaps in this empathy sort of calculation exist as opposed to more experientially, you know, organically built, more peer-driven relationship brands that tend to be newer. And I think that's that's a really interesting thing for, you know, more established brands to sort of keep in mind. But the trust thing still does exist, right? There's there's still some legacy issues in that peer creation where authenticity around trust can be an issue as it is for Facebook and, and Uber. One of the things we did in the study is we created these sort of comparisons, right? We did these brand pairs to sort of dive in within a category to how brands might be performing around our metrics against each other. 
Uh, could each of you sort of share your favorite brand pair story? Sure. I want to be the one to talk about Nike and Adidas because obviously <laughs> I have history with both of those clients and he's not, he's not taking dibs on that. <laughs> <laughs> Here you've got, you know, you've got two brands going head to head with that Gen Z audience that I talked about earlier. And what we see from Adidas is that they tend towards product innovation stories. Most of their brand work tends to be centered around product, whereas Nike, more societal issues, wearing their heart on their sleeve type stuff with the brand work that we've seen certainly over the last 12 months. It was quite interesting to me this because I thought that there would be much more of a difference between those two brands because of the approaches that they take from an EQ perspective, but there actually isn't. The margins are are very nuanced when you look at both of the profiles and you aggregate the data at a global level. Nike just edging ahead slightly on, on empathy. But what is interesting with this data is that it gives you the ability to dive into the markets specifically. And when you start to look at the profiles by markets, then you do start to see some bigger variances. So, you know, on brands like that, when you think about global strategy, global creative that's produced versus more local media execution, there's definitely some learnings in there in terms of the balance between a global approach and, and local strategies. Sean? Well, first of all, I think it's really interesting that, you know, Google and Microsoft, you know, that have got pretty similar profiles across the, the five EQ drivers that we've mapped out are number one and number two. So I think that that in itself is really, really interesting. And, you know, I kind of alluded to potentially some of the reasons why beforehand. But my my favourite pair actually are of Visa and MasterCard that were number one and two within the, you know, the, the brands connected to financial services. And I just thought it was really, it's really, really interesting that they scored so well on emotional intelligence, given, you know, that they're physically represented as plastic rectangles in people's wallets, or they are, you know, virtual kind of service providers. It's quite interesting that they could deliver you know, really abundant human quality in the in the way that they do, and I guess you know they they are unlocking really interesting human need states, freedom of choice, flexibility, you know, and, and empowerment, and and I guess their marketing and the experiences they build embody those virtues in in, in really interesting ways. You know, from Mastercard, I think that they've been sort of brilliantly consistent in focusing on priceless possibilities for, for many years. But I think going back to this point I made about reinvention, they managed to constantly reinvent the way that they express a, a sort of timeless, you know, very, very emotionally sort of charged virtue. I think it's really interesting if you look at the work that they're doing right now. One of the things that, that I kind of picked out was their, their work during 2020 on, on the true name card. It's a really interesting idea, an idea of the moment they've enabled you know, transgender people to be known by the name they want to be known on their MasterCard, you know, which I think is a very human deed, a sign of a, a high EQ organisation. So I think lots of the MasterCard's work in purpose area and in the areas of enabling people to unlock their passions is really interesting. You know, Visa, you know, Visa, Visa not our client, but I think that they, they do some really human stuff also and are very, very successful in that respect. I think one of the things that I picked out was their championing of small businesses and local shopping, I think is really interesting and would go down as a kind of high EQ 
marketing initiative, you know, helping small enterprises that are, I guess, personified by individual people or kind of families. So I think that they kind of go about the business of EQ in, in slightly different ways. But I think they're a really interesting pair and there's a lot to be learned from them. So Fiona, any surprises for you in the study? Anything that sort of made you go, huh? That's a very yeah. technical question, by the way. That's only a great interviewer can pull off that kind of question. <laughs> <laughs> I think the point around brands being let down by empathy and ethics is really interesting. And that was a surprise to me because, you know, understanding the needs of others and acting with integrity you know, that's at the heart of consumer-centric marketing, which is not a new thing. It's something we've been talking about for a long time. Yeah. So I was really surprised to see that all the brands across all the industries in our study scored the lowest there. Yeah. So Sean, just specifically on Facebook, you know, how much of an issue is this ethical question for them, you know, related to a lack of understanding, related to a lack of empathy? Uh, how big of a problem is that? Well, it is actually quite a big problem, Robert. And, you know, we, we actually wrote a piece in the report on Facebook and Uber that were 9 and 10 out of 12 out of the tech-orientated brands and actually fell below some of the category norms against all five drivers by some measure. But trust and ethics is not the strongest suit overall of the tech brands, and it's certainly not the strongest suit of Facebook and Uber. I think what it shows is that, that our data, you know, kind of corroborates the feeling that there has been, I guess, out in the news media and, and generally in conversation and also within our industry that there are issues with some of Facebook's kind of practices, which I know that they've, you know, they've sought to sort of front up in quite a, a way that pays back to them acting on kind of principle to safeguard freedom of, of speech and, and expression but the data that you know that I'm looking at now shows that they're not being you know they're not being thanked for that stand mm. by the people that, that that completed our study. So I would say that there is quite a big problem. And it actually, if you look at the gulf between where Facebook sits on our index and where Google sits, for instance, and where Microsoft sits, you know, the poles apart. So I would yeah. say I would say it is quite a big deal. And I guess you know we're now having this conversation against the backdrop of, you know, misinformation, again, being a big deal. So I would say it is something that they need, to, you know, at some point they're going to have to grasp the nettle on it. Otherwise, yeah. they will continue to score badly on studies like this. Yeah, I think that's right. The issue they have is not only is there a, an issue here, it's that each new day brings new issues. <laughs> and, and I think it's that the relentlessness especially as it relates to, you know, disinformation, brand safety, some of these things, you know, it's the day in, day outness of it and the sheer scale, which is their massive asset, that is a really, really difficult thing for them to manage. Fiona, I want to ask you a question, you know, after having worked on this, digesting all this, what's your, you know, you work with clients all the time. What, what's your advice to clients about some of the impacts here in the study? So I think, you know, going back to my favorite chart on page 25. <laughs> the, the we, we will make sure to tweet it out along with the, uh, with the, with the podcast. <laughs> the connection between, you know, EQ and growth is, is there. This, this should be a C-suite conversation. This is really, really important that brands are getting this right. 
And I think I would have two pieces of advice. The first is around every brand in any organization has a, a mantra or a manifesto for brand building or a way of doing brand building that is a belief system that they have for their organization. And I guess that's the first place that I would start is all of the things that we've talked about today and that are in the study around having the right beliefs. It, are they part of that belief system for marketing that is is in the brand that that you're working on that's the first thing so are you is the cultural alignment there i guess and then the second piece is is the operating system and to have a look at the system in which all of the agencies are operating together and is that set up to deliver in the right way with brand eq at the heart of it so those two things i think would be my piece of advice look at the belief system for marketing mm-hmm. and look at model for agencies. I think that's really good advice, particularly now, right? Particularly yeah. now. Sean, any quick advice for brands? Yeah, well, I'll I'll try and make it quick. I think this <laughs> I think there's a lot in this I think there's a lot in this for brands. First of all, I think that you can set out to improve your emotional intelligence as a brand through the experiences you deliver. I think there's a reason why Goldman's work's been really successfully used for, you know, kind of C-suite types and within exec leadership kind of programs. I think it is something that can be worked on by individuals or by organizations if you if you take some of the learning. So I think that's the first thing, which is lean in. Secondly, and I think what one of the ways that we're applying this is I think it's great to get closer to design thinking and, you know, user experience practice. Because these are disciplines that are human-centered, encourage you to look at people's needs, encourage you to prototype ideas, encourage you to iterate, encourage you to teamwork. So I think that you can put you can put emotional intelligence at the heart of the way you do your work in order to deliver greater emotional intelligence for your brand. So I think, you know, ways of working alongside belief system, as Fiona said, I think one of my conclusions from this is that every brand these days needs a service proposition. So if your turnaround time to make changes to your physical product is a long lead, it's really, really helpful if you can do things that are genuinely useful to people from an experience perspective to take account of their needs, changing cultural context, offer up new stuff. So I think there's something really interesting in making sure that you're thinking about you know, extensions of your product into into areas of service that maybe you're not working with now, or to invest more in letting people know where they can get access to your brand, you know, in new and different ways. So some of the owned assets, some of the services that you provide, loyalty schemes, yep. you know, advice, different different ways that you can help improve everyday life. I think potentially brands need to look at what they're promoting. You know, is it the product? Is it the service? And I think there are really, really interesting areas to explore there. And I think then lastly, and Fiona talked about this uh, earlier in the pod, which is think about young consumers, think about future consumers. They really care about this stuff. And and if you can land right with them, then you're in a, going to be in a, in a good space in the medium term. Yeah, I think that's a huge thing around importance of this to audiences under, you know, 35. It, it's just yeah. a massive deal. I think also, Robert, they're the audiences who are digging into the experience that brands give in the digital space. Their expectations are perhaps different to other cohorts. Absolutely. And I think they've been trained to judge 
failures in that area kind of quickly, you know, so not just the the ethics of the brand, but the way the way that the experience works. Absolutely. So it's kind of a, there's either a double whammy win or loss with the kind of younger millennial and, and Gen Z cohort. Yeah, it's an exponential thing for sure. All right, last two. And then we're going to jump into the lightning round, Fiona. Are you excited for that part? Very, very excited. <laughs> <laughs> so, Sean, what's next with the study? What are we going to go do next? Well, I'm really excited, Robert, because I think we're going to do some more. <laughs> I, I'm going to get to geek out on this endlessly. So I think, I think what's next for us, you know, we looked at 50 household names globally, you know, 10, 10 markets in, you know, APAC, Europe and the Americas. You know, I think we'll ex- probably expand the study out. I think we'll look at some more markets. I think we will we'll look at more brands. I think we will look at some brands that are big locally as well as brands that are big globally. I think we'll look at global brands maybe that are coming from coming from different parts of the world. I think there's big capacity for, for us to look at more brands maybe that are, have got a Chinese origin, for instance. Yeah. I think we can expand the study out in that way. I think we may well look at some brands which have got a B2B as well as B2C angle. So, you know, our clients such as Intel of ours, I think we would we would look at next time. So I think we can add some more scale, scope and richness to the study after this pilot. Awesome. I'm looking forward to all that. So, Fiona, I'll start with you on this last question before the goofy part of the pod. And it's this. You outlined sort of the thinking and all the work that's gone into coming up with, you know, who we are and how we see ourselves in this modern world and how that's changed our view of the business, our view of our capabilities and the way in which we work for our clients. In doing all that work, what have you learned about Kara along the way? I just feel so positive about the work that we've done with the network over the last sort of six to 12 months because, you know, we've we, we really clearly articulated a belief system for the agency, which everybody has just got behind wholeheartedly, taken it on locally, built on it, taken it to different levels. Uh, within their own local organization. And that, you know, from a global perspective, it's just so heartening to see how our teams are really galvanizing around the belief system that we have with Designing for People. And then the second piece, this man here who I'm sharing the pod with today has been really focused on, you know, how we deliver Designing for People and the operating model that sits behind it. And I think that is so important It's not enough to just go out with, you know, a shiny, interesting point of view, an amazing brand film that our global CMO has created. You have to have the plumbing and the wiring underneath it to be able to drive that with clients. So I'm really, really positive about both of those things. You know, we've seen some success in in some of the new business pitches that we've been doing this year. Clients really leaning into, into the approach that we're taking. So I'm excited and we're ready for action. (laughs) <laughs> I love that part. All right, Sean, you have anything you want to throw in there about what you learned about Cara quickly before I jump in? You know what? I think it's not just about Cara, but it's about our clients as well, because we were we were chatting with the good people at Philips yesterday about mm. design people and, you know, brand EQ. I think people have got a real thirst for, for, for this and are really kind of curious about developing more human experiences. And so I actually think we're on the cusp of a, 
a really exciting time at Cara and probably more broadly in marketing where we're bringing together lots of the new exciting stuff that we can do with data and tech. But I think there's a real determination to try and create better human outcomes on all that goes along with that in terms of, you know, exciting activation, you know, kind of great insight. So I think, you know, for me, it's a great time to be involved in, in, in strategy, brilliant time to be involved in media. I think the receptiveness that we found towards brand EQ is really indicative of, of, of exciting times ahead. And, you know, I think it gives me a lot of optimism for 2021 that we're going to have learned some kind of great stuff in 2020 that we can uh, harness to good ends going forward. Awesome. All right. Lightning round. We ready? Yeah. I'm scared. <laughs> don't, don't, don't be awkward. Don't be scared. We've all been trapped at home in various stages of quarantine during the pandemic for many, many months. You guys are, I think, about to re-embark on a more strict version. I feel like we never really left the strict version here in New Jersey, uh, sort of, maybe. My question is, you know, it's come with sort of its pluses and minuses, but what has been sort of your favorite you know, kind of family moment or favorite personal moment of the past couple of months? Fiona? Well, I have to say my TikToks because <laughs> I know that's what you want me to say. Well, it is. I, I got to tell you, they're among my favorite personal moments, your TikToks. <laughs> yeah. So having been a parent of a 13-year-old and trying to make sure that I understand all the safety elements of TikTok and I've got everything set up in the right way. My husband and I basically decided, well, if you can't beat them, join them. So embraced on a on a Friday night TikTok with our daughters, which uh, we sent round to all of our friends, which became a bit of a highlight of the week of uh, how much alcohol have we consumed and how silly are we this week? <laughs> They've been awesome. Uh, Sean? Well, you know what? In a sort of strange way, I've, I've been really enjoying observing my daughter's independence and bravery during, uh, you know, what's been, you know, quite an unsettling period. And I think when the kind of stay at home all the time restrictions kind of got rolled back, my kids were just like super brave in taking to their bikes and riding kind of miles away from home in ways that kids don't normally do because the kind of roads were quiet. My eldest daughter was determined to be one of the first people to go back into central London. And in a sort of strange way, even though it's been a time where we've all felt our kind of independence curbed, I think these girls and their friends have embraced the opportunity to assert a bit of independence. And, uh, you know, I think that in an unusual way, they're going to come out of all this in a, in a really good spot despite having to do loads of lessons on Microsoft Teams and being frustrated with all that kind of stuff. So I think from a family moment, watching my daughters really, uh, you know, spread their wings a bit has been brilliant. I love that. All-time favorite band or song or album, Fiona? What a stinker. I'm not sure it will do my brand any good talking about my music consumption. And yet here we are not worrying about brand. This is all about uh, emotional intelligence. This is us understanding you better, Fiona. 
you know what? The music that uplifts me the most uh, right now is when my eight-year-old comes in and says, Alexa, play musicals. And we have everything from (laughs) Wicked to The Greatest Showman and everybody singing and dancing around the kitchen, even my husband. I think those are the things that right now at the moment uplift me more than anything else because it's it's just joy and we can share in it. We all love musical theatre and miss our arts so much during this pandemic. So that would be my answer right now. All right. Well, Charlotte will be on a flight tomorrow. She'll be to you guys by uh, by dinner time, and uh, and you can all sing together because that's definitely in her wheelhouse for sure. Sean, favorite all time band song, seminal album of your youth. So from a music perspective, I'm not dodging your question. I've actually been playing quite a lot of bass during uh, during the lockdown period. So I've even managed to do a virtual music exam during this period, which which has been great. I've also been loving the fact that in the UK there's been a massive there's been a massive turn back to the rave scene that's going on. So on my on my favourite music station, Six Music, there's loads of old school rave classics being played. What well, I've been listening to a lot of quite cheesy dance music, <laughs> and I've been particularly loving an Australian band called Cut Copy who sound a little bit like New Order, but their music is like super optimistic. It's a bit of Australian sunshine. Well, uh, we'll take that, right, in any form. Yeah, yeah. So that's what I've been That's what I've been enjoying. I always find it really hard to pin down the ultimate favorite, but they've been helping me to get through lockdown times. Awesome. Last one real quick, Sean. Leeds final position table. 12. I'll be happy with 12. 12. Will they be above or below Man United? <laughs> Sadly... Robert, hello. <laughs> I'm, I'm not so sure. Uh, Fiona, when's the next TikTok drop? Well, now we're in the second lockdown. You might, you might be lucky, Robert, this weekend. You might be lucky. All right. I'm looking forward to it. I, when I heard, I, I, this is honest to God truth, the first couple of things I thought of when I heard that you guys were going back in was, uh, you know, I, I hate that for my friends. And then the second thing was, I'm getting TikToks again. I, I know it. <laughs> Listen, you guys have been absolutely marvelous as I could have predicted. Thank you so much for coming on. And, you know, just from a personal perspective, you guys know you're two of my favorites. So thank you. Thanks, Robert. Thank you, Robert. So before we close, I just wanted to briefly talk about our predictions. We're not going to get into any specificity except to say that um, we were not 100% correct. Jason, is that a fair assessment? Well, I'm looking at the numbers now. It seems like I'm 50% sure we will end up less than 100% correct. Perfect, perfect. I did want to say this because we forget this. This election saw this country come out and vote at a level that we haven't seen in 100 years. And that is an incredibly validating part of us exercising you know, our right in, in one of the greatest experiments in self-government the world's ever known. And I think... Amidst all of the nonsense, we won't remember that enough, probably. And so I would love to sort of remind us all of that. But I think there's a lesson in here for marketers, which is really my point of ending with this today. And that is, you know, we as an agency have tried to be always committed to our founding principle, this idea of human understanding, this idea of of empathy, and really getting an idea of how people work uh, and how people think. And I think in the world, not just in this country, but, but in the world, that is something that clients, 
desperately need to understand on behalf of their own customers. And it's something that agencies need to desperately understand on behalf of their clients. And so I think for me, you know, this little experience, no matter which way it winds up, is a reinforcement that the fundamental principle of marketing is human understanding and that we need to spend more time understanding folks and what motivates them than maybe sometimes we do in our discipline. So little little sermon at the end of the pod today. Sorry for that, but I wanted to make sure I said it. Thanks so much for listening. Please find us anywhere you find your pods. Please subscribe, send us a comment, give us a rating. We love all those things. In the meantime, be well, be just. We'll be back out to you real soon. Bye-bye.